to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. And for those who missed the announcement for Andy, just want to remind you, we like to begin the New Year off right with a New Year's communion that will be tonight at 6. I'll do the state of the church and we then will have communion in Christ. You don't have to actually be a member of this church, but a member of the body of Christ to receive communion. So that'll be tonight at 6. And then we'll have a brief members meeting to follow. And um, look forward to that if you can make it tonight. John chapter 15. We've turned a new chapter here in our text in, in John. And this should be a familiar section for you where Jesus states that he is the vine, verse 1, and he says it again in verse 5, I am the vine, and he adds to it, you are the branches. This section here in John chapter 15 reminds me a bit of John chapter 10 where Jesus said he is the door to the sheepfold and he's also the good shepherd. Now, obviously, these are statements that are known as figures of speech, metaphors, if you will. They convey great meaning by the way of illustration. But we have to stop here as we look at this particular text in John chapter 15 to make sure that we're very careful in reading this so that we understand it in the way it was intended to be. When you interpret a parable or a metaphor or a story of this type and nature that is used as an illustration, they're intended to convey doctrine and truth by the way of illustration. And therefore, when we interpret it, to understand it, you have to be careful not to push it too far. It actually is illustrating a truth and a reality. It isn't the truth and reality is an illustration of it. And so I like to say when you <clears throat> interpret a metaphor, don't make it stand on all fours, if you will. It's a, it is, after all, an illustration. So we have to be careful not to read into it too much. We're looking for the meaning of the author. Sometimes it, it's explained explicitly in the text, and it will be a late, later on to some degree, so that's helpful. But the main explanation should come from the clear teaching in God's Word. We call it the didactic teaching. So we need to have some sort of <clears throat> safeguards when you read an illustration or a metaphor like this. You want to look in the immediate context and, and to read it. Read it in the Gospel of John. Read it in the other Gospels. Read it within the context of the New Testament and certainly the Old Testament. This is why, by the way, some, and I'll, I'll do this some degree today, why we often go look at other texts and even in the Old Testament to uh, compare and contrast and look at what we would call cross-references. In this metaphor, as we look for the meaning of what, it, what Christ is intending to communicate to his church, 
the idea here that I grab, at least in the first eight verses, is, is quite significant, is this, is this idea of abiding in me, as Jesus would say, or abide in Christ, as I might say. He calls for his people to abide in him. It's repeated. Note how often it's repeated as I read through just the first eight verses this morning. Let's read John 15, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant us a hearing of your word and a heeding of it today. May it nourish and feed those who desire to abide in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I hope as I read here, you took special notice as to how often this phrase, abide in me, is repeated, depending on how you look at it and how you count it, at least five times, and maybe a sixth one here in verse 2 where it says, every branch in me, that, that is someone that is abiding in Christ. Nevertheless, this phrase, abide in me, is certainly emphasized, as you notice here in this text. In verse 4, the statement, abide in me, is a command. And remember, those who love Christ, as Jesus has ex already previously explained in chapter 14, obey his commandments. This is his command, that you would indeed abide in him. As we talked about before in chapter 14, those that are truly regenerate, that is truly saved, they've had a heart change, if you will, and a, a change of their affections, a change of their attitudes, and it ultimately affects how they act as well. It is expressed by their obedience, John 14 and verse 15. Jesus makes this command then to abide in him, but he also gives the ability to do it. It is through the regenerate heart. As Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and grant 
what you command. And that's the idea here. It is a command, but Christ gives the ability to fulfill that command. This idea of abiding in him, and we'll get to that in days to come, is also expressed in, in, in the way in which you would love Christ. Look down to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. And it's just a different way of expressing this abide in me. Abide in my love then specifically. And how is that expressed? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Christ did this in perfection. He obeyed all and fulfilled all righteousness. This command then is given for a number of reasons, certainly one for the Christian to remind them that they are to abide or remain in Christ. It is an easy tendency for all, like, and here's this other illustration, all of us have, like sheep, you know, wandered away, if you will, and so here is the command and the reminder to remain in Christ. The word for abide in the Greek means to remain. It means to stay. It means to reside. And that's the illustration that Christ is giving here. He's calling his disciples specifically to remain in him, to abide with him, or we might say to commune with Christ, to fellowship with him. Abiding and remaining in communion with Christ is a spiritual reality. It's intangible, though, and in many ways it's really kind of abstract. So what does it mean to abide and to remain in him? Well, this is why Jesus provides this illustration, this metaphor of the vine, to take that which is abstract and make it a little bit more concrete in our thinking. A physical illustration to communicate a spiritual truth, that's what's going on. So as we begin our thoughts on this metaphor there are at least four things that we need to be familiar with. The vine itself, the vine dresser, the branches, as they're mentioned here, and what it means to bear fruit. Now, each of these could be a sermon in and of themselves, and uh, I did think about that, but uh, for the sake of time, I'm, I, was, I worked through here and after I had about 20 pages of notes or more, I decided, well, we'll just break this up in two. So this is part one. If you want to hear the rest of it, come back next week. And I hope I can get through part one. Uh, nevertheless, we'll talk mostly this morning about the concept of the vine and the vine dresser, and what it means to abide in Christ, the vine and the vine dresser. Notice verse one, Jesus tells us, what the vine is to illustrate. I am the true vine, he says in verse 1. This I am, it should cause you to think about 
the other I am's that Jesus has made in relationship to something else. There are a total of seven specific ones in John. They're intentional in the way it's orchestrated here. Jesus said, if you remember, I am the bread of life in John 6. He said, I am the light of the world in John 8. And in John 10, there's two of them. I already mentioned them. The do- he says, I am the door. And then I also am the good shepherd in John 10. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's number seven in our text. The last I am mentioned, I am the true vine. We've mentioned this before. We've been through it six times already. But the I am conveys the idea of an expression of divinity. So it is a statement of his divinity to say I am. And then this um, concept here of the, in this case, the true vine. Now the vine in their day would have been incredibly common. It is a fixture of their culture. The fruit of the vine, grapes, it was an essential part of their life in the first century in this area. They would have been able to harvest it and drink fresh, sweet juice. We don't think much of it, but we have so many options as to beverages in our culture and world. They would have been highly limited and here was something naturally sweet and flavorful that they were able to make sweet juice and drink. They could make jellies and jams and store them in that regard for a long way. It could ferment itself and be used to cleanse the water that they drank and remove the bacteria from it. Normally they would mix the, the naturally fermented wine with at least three parts or more of water to be able to uh, drink it uh, and remove some of the bacteria. They would also allow it to continue to um, ferment, if you will, and change into vinegar, another useful uh, thing in their uh, culture. So it was very common then for them to understand and know about vines and the use of vines and and, uh, grape, the fruit of the vine, the grape, and so forth. It was so common that the... uh, they would often um, use this vine figure as uh, various types of symbolism and so forth. You can find it on the coins of the Maccabees, for example. But one place that's interesting and might actually be related directly to Jesus' use of this illustration, I'm sure he used it because it was something common they knew about for sure, but this vine, the grapevine, was also inscribed quite notably on the temple. Josephus, writing in the first century, says, describing the temple entrance doors, wrote, they were adorned with embroidered veils with their flowers of purple and pillars interwoven. And over these, but under the crown work, was spread out a golden vine 
with its branches hanging down from a great height, the largest and fine workmanship of, of which was surprising sight to the spectators, to see what vast materials there were and what great skill and workmanship there was. In the, in the um, Mishnah, which is essentially um, a com Jewish commentary, if you will, they, was, they said a golden vine stood over the entrance to the sanctuary, trained over the posts, and whosoever gave a leaf, a berry, or a cluster as a free will offering, he brought it, and the priest hung it thereon. It was very notable, is the point. Inscribed on the temple, and they all knew it. It's a beautiful artwork, and such that folks would actually even hang things on, on it and, and around it and so forth. Uh, as a free will offering to God. They, they knew it very well. If you remember, chapter 14 ends with, well, let's arise and go from here. And of course, we have a couple more chapters of instruction that's given. We're not certain exactly what is going on, but you could imagine perhaps to some degree that there is this idea that here they are in the upper room, Jesus is teaching, and right at this point, they rise and they go up. Perhaps they walked from the upper room in, down into the Kidron Valley, across the Mount of Olives, and there they could see this golden vine, the, nat, the national emblem of Israel on the very front door of the temple. Don't know that for sure, certainly in their mind, and certainly they would have remembered this emblem that is on their most holy place. And here, Jesus makes this emphatic statement, and he simply says, I am the vine. It was essential to their economy to their culture, and it was even integrated into their worship. And Jesus makes a statement and says, I am the vine. But beyond that, the first statement, though, he qualifies it, and he adds this word, true. Not only the vine, but I'm the true vine. Our first impression of that might be true as contrasted with false. And that wouldn't be wrong, necessarily. That would be a correct statement. Jesus is the true, contrasted with the false. But I don't think that actually goes far enough. For him to say that he is the, the true vine, he's the true vine in the sense that he is the antitype to the type, to all the Old Testament that pointed to the reality that is Jesus Christ. He is the substance, if you will, to which the symbols addressed. He is truth in the sense of reality. And all of these worshipers would have looked at the vine on the temple and he says, I am the true vine. I am what this is all pointing to. He's already done that to some degree, use that convention before. If you remember in chapter 1 and verse 9, specifically, he says about the light, 1-9, I am the true light. There were other lights that came forward, but who were they all pointing to? 
They were pointing to that one who was true, and it is Jesus Christ who is the true light. In John chapter 6, talking with the Pharisees about Moses who gave them bread. And what is his response to him? He says, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Yeah, this manna given to them was a pointer to that which would sustain them. That is Jesus Christ. He's not just any light. He's not any bread. He isn't just any vine. He is the reality to which all of the symbols pointed. In Hebrews chapter 8, this preacher in Hebrews expands on this to a greater degree. I'll just read it for you. He is a minister speaking of Christ in the holy places, Hebrews 8, 2, in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. This is explained a little further on in chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Hebrews 9, 24. All of this that had gone before is simply a copy, if you will, a symbol, if you will, of that which is true, that which is the reality, that it which is Jesus Christ. He says, I am. He is the true vine, not a copy. He really is the substance of life itself, of light itself, of bread, of the vine. In the Old Testament, you can read about the vine quite a bit. You can find it detailed in Psalm 80. We may look at that in a bit. Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15 and 19, among other places. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, which they would have been familiar with the Old Testament, I think not only is there a pointing to the symbol that they were familiar with, but also the reality that those symbols, and particularly Israel, was characterized by failure. D.A. Carson Remarks, the most remarkable is the fact that whenever historic Israel is referred to under this figure, that is, he's talking about under the figure of a vine, it is the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized, along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on the nation. Now, now, in contrast to such failure, Jesus claims, I am the true vine, the one to whom Israel pointed, and the one that brings forth good fruit. Jesus has already, in principle, superseded the, the temple, the Jewish feasts, Moses, various holy sites, and here he supersedes Israel itself as the very locus of the people of God. 
God planted, if you will, in that imagery, a vine in Israel. And the result was failure after failure after failure after failure. And here is one that comes, a true son, a true vine, and one who succeeds and fulfills all that is required of him. Jesus simply puts it this way, I am the true vine. Secondly, let's note the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine, and in our text, he states that my father is then the vine dresser. We can abide in Jesus Christ and fulfill that command because, number one, he is the true vine. And number two, his father is the vine dresser. This word translated vine dresser is a word, a general word for farmer. Here it's used in, in this analogy as someone, if you could imagine, who has functional oversight of this vineyard. One who oversees, one who plans, one who directs those things that are to be accomplished. Those things that need to be accomplished are done according to the vine dresser's plan. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as the vine dresser. And here I invite you to turn to this Psalm 80 that I alluded to before. You may want to see it. Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is really a prayer of repentance by God's people. They acknowledge that God is, in this analogy, the vine dresser who cares for, oversees, and supersedes this creation, this vine. So this vineyard analogy is, is used. In this psalm, Psalm 80, this is... Um, most likely a penitent response of after the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722. They were, they were God's plant, if you will, planted vineyard, both the northern and the southern kingdom. And in 722, the northern kingdom was completely wiped out. And so here is a penitent psalm of prayer, and we'll pick up at verse 7. In the text, when he moves to use this vine dresser illustration. And the repentance is this Restore us, O God of hosts, verse 7. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove the nations, and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it, you took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and shoots to the river. Verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. The, the idea is that this idea of repentance is they, they are confessing their, their sin. 
than to receive the blessings of God. And that's the call in verse 14. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They are also, that is Israel, identified as the sons of God. And that's the imagery there. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down that, they, that it may perish at the rebuke of your face. Verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And here it has some messianic overtones, doesn't it? They were to be the sons of God. They were to be in obedience to him, but yet they were disobedient and received judgment. And so here is a prayer for the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. It is none other than Jesus Christ, who is this true Son, who is this true vine, who fulfills all that is required when this prayer of repentance is really a call also for and look forwarding to the Messiah who will come. When he does, then we shall not turn back from you, verse 18. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. It is God's sovereign choice in granting them life, and it comes through this strong one, this son that he made strong for himself, that is, for his own glory. And here again, a, a final repentance prayer, verse 19. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. In other words, allow his glory to be revealed. Jesus fulfills this prayer. He is the fulfillment of all that they needed and required. It is accomplished through the true son. My, my point here, though, is also pointing to the fact that they recognize that God is the vine dresser. And they have to pray to him for all of this to be accomplished. The illustration fits. Vines, as they knew, would not plant themselves. They would not produce good fruit without great care, great control, and constant attention. Left alone, they would be wild. They would not bear good fruit. And this gets on to, and I appreciate um, Paul mentioning this when he read our text in Psalm 29. I think he said something to the fact that God didn't create the world just to let it go on its own. If he, if he did, it would just go out of control, you understand. It, it may appear at times that things are out of control, but they're not. They're under the sovereign care of the vine dresser. In Psalm 80, they recognize it. It was devastating. For the entire northern kingdom to be absolutely destroyed. But they recognized that God allowed it. And he did so. 
as divine judgment that was indeed just, and the response is simply this, Lord, save me. Restore me, O Lord, that your face might shine glorious. God didn't create this world as some sort of autonomous entity that could function without his divine intervention. In fact, I always mused on this, but never tried it. Have you ever grown a little garden spot? Planted the seeds in the ground, cultivated it, cared for it. You know what the worst part about it is? The weeds. I hate the weeds. Because no matter how good that soil is that I prepare and know how, how much time I spend spacing these plants apart, doing all this, before long weeds get in there. I hate weeds. So one year I thought, well, maybe if I planted weeds, then, then good fruit would come up. And, and I found out that, um, no, just more weeds. So, so don't try that. The point is, it, it, it takes great care. The humanist mind in our culture is really being permeated with that in a great deal today. Has this idea that the world itself is, is not planted by God, but instead self-generated. It is random and accidental. And these same people would make this argument that it's self-generated, that it's just random and accidental, then would come up with this scientific method (laughs) to where things are tested and tried and proved and then claim that that ideology is scientific. Though they have no methods to confirm, no methods to repeat, and no methods to prove such ideologies. These are the thoughts and imaginations of sinful men who refuse to acknowledge the creator to whom they are morally accountable. And that's it. It's a moral problem more than anything else. It's a desire not to be accountable to God. It, it doesn't make any sense in our real world. Things left on their own are going to devolve into chaos and destruction. There is a vine dresser. And he is in constant care of his creation. Look at Romans chapter 1. And by the way, for um, it's helpful to look at these other texts from time to time. I know we're spending a long time in John, but I hope you also recognize we do look at other texts along the way, and hopefully they'll encourage you. This is a great text to explain the ideology of men who imagine a world without a vine dresser. Romans 1 and and verse 18, it, it, Paul explains that God's wrath is already being revealed. This is why judgment will come. Because of the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Note the words, suppress the truth. This is what's happening. It's so obvious that a vineyard must have a vine dresser. 
How much more so a world, a creation, have a creator? But why is this rejected? It isn't because of the facts of it. It is due to the suppression. And the imagery here of suppression is like this giant spring that you just have to push back on. Because it's pushing back on you all the time. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the what? The creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. No excuse. I love John Piper's illustration of this. I won't go into detail, but he, he reminds us of the word, the Greek word here for made. You know what it's the word for? Poem. Poema. And the illustration is this. If you're walking along the beach and you saw a random stick or two, so what? But then you know the, the two of them are shaped like, well, it looks like an L. And then you step forward and then it, it's shaped like the word O and then, then a V and then an E. And so now this isn't just driftwood that came up on the shore. Somebody wrote this. And then you, you hear... Is you read, you keep walking, and you and you keep reading more. Love is patient. Love is kind. You read a poem. That's what's going on here, in the creation of the world. It is so intricately, intricately designed that it expresses the very creativity of God and the ability to work things together. In this way, uh, I, I've mentioned this before, but it just comes to my mind again. I, I remember watching some scientists engaged in a dissection of an animal, and one of them said, wow, what an incredible design. And then he caught himself. <laughs> I mean, random act. <laughs> he, he knows it's clear. It's plainly seen. So they're without excuse. Why would someone continue to deny the vine dresser? Verse 21, although they knew God, they, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks. They know God. You don't have to prove anything. They know in their heart. It's a suppression of him. And so God gives them what they want. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Go ahead and reject God. He will give you what you want, and it will be foolishness, and your heart will be darkened. Claiming, of course, verse 22, to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal, immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. He gave them up what? And here's where I said it's a moral issue. He gave them up in the lust, in the lust of their hearts to impurity 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You may freely choose to believe whatever you want, but not without consequences. Jesus describes the Father as the vine dresser. The point is, it is un that all things are under the sovereign decree of God and are working out as he purposes. All things. Even 2020. <laughs> Saw a sign on the way over here said, some to the fact, glad that's over. Well, we don't know what's going to be in 2021. But I have something to say about that tonight, so come back. God's a fine dresser. He's working all things according to his counsel, his purposes. We often use a catechism to help explain and express that. From the Baptist Catechism, what are the decrees of God, as we would call them? Here's the answer. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, by which for his own glory has foreordained whatever comes to pass. Do you believe that? His own will, for his own glory, has foreordained all things that come to pass. Let me read you a scripture that would affirm that. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have attained an inheritance, that is, those that are in Christ get an inheritance in him, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Jesus means my father is the vine dresser. All things. How does God execute his decrees? The catechism asks, answer, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and in the providence of God. What's the providence of God? Let me allow a pagan by the name of Nebuchadnezzar to tell us who saw God, was judged for his behavior, and then confesses this in Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The end of this, he, Nebuchadnezzar confesses, now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God has created all things, and how does he work them out in time? We call that providence. 
Catechism asks, what are the God's works of providence? The answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, and note this, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. I'll read a few texts of Scripture to affirm that. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and rules over all. That's the imagery of the vine dresser. And it isn't that just God rules over the big things. It's also the little things and everything. Jesus would remind us in his teaching in Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall from the ground apart from your father. John MacArthur comments on that. Not merely without God's knowledge. Of course God knows. He would know all. He's omniscient. But Jesus' teaching was that God providentially controls the timing and the circumstances of such insignificant events as the death of a sparrow. Even the numbers of the hairs on our head is controlled by his sovereign will in verse 30. In other words, divine providence governs even the smallest details and even the most mundane matters. This is a sovereign God. And no wonder Jesus explains to his disciples that the Father is the vine dresser. He is sovereign over that which we might think is something major and that which is something that is minor. He tends to it all. And in a vineyard, a vineyard is not a vineyard without a vine dresser. What does the vine dresser do? There's two things, note here in our text, back to John 15. He purges and he prunes. Those are the two things that are stressed in this metaphor. Purging and a pruning. Notice verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's the idea of purging. Now here's where, <clears throat> when I address the beginning of this, since this is an illustration, an analogy, a metaphor, if you will, be careful that you don't push it too far. And Arminian at this point would say, well... A branch in him, he takes away, that, that means you're going to lose your salvation. That would be a clear contradiction to Jesus' statements that he's already made. For example, in chapter 10, he says, No one can pluck them out of my hand. And my hand is in the Father's hand. And no one can get them out of his hand. It would violate the promise that he made when he said, all that believe in him, he will raise them up on the last day. So we know that can't be true. We understand it from the clear teaching, even from just the immediate context of John and Jesus' teaching. 
Yeah, there are many, though, if we would reject this idea, this would be folks that would lose their salvation, taking away. What does this in me mean? There are many good scholars from a, what I would determine a, uh, a sovereignty of God view, or perhaps you might think of it as Calvinistic perspective, who would reject Arminianism. Yet they're tripped up by this little phrase in verse 2, in me, the branch in me. What does that mean? Well, some have then concluded, since you can't lose your salvation and you're in me, that is in, in Christ, it must be something other than purging. The word itself in Greek can mean to lift up. It can mean take away in destruction, or it can mean lift up. So, so what is it? Some of my favorite commentators, Pink and Constable, both affirm the idea here that this in me, he takes away, should be translated lifting up, that is, someone who is in need, that is, in a, a Christian, God, the vine dresser, will come along and lift them up. And that would be a true statement. I just don't find it here in this illustration. In fact, some even go further, which Pink and Constable do not. Um, I'm just mentioning this because you may read this. You're going to get some different ideas if you read some commentaries concerning this analogy. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, for example, in his systematic theology, he's going to conclude that there can be genuine life in Christ without fruit, although he admits that that would be rare. But there can be that in a Christian life. This conclusion, I would argue, is based on a faulty hermeneutic. And as I said, don't make the illustration walk on our all fours. Notice this idea of branch in me. Some have argued, well, how could this be someone who is not truly a Christian? Jesus has used this concept in his teaching before. Chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2 in verse 23 through 24 after the Passover, many believed in his name. Okay? They believed in him. They saw the signs that he was doing. And verse 24, chapter 2 says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. There are many people who may profess that they are in Christ, but they're not. They've deceived themselves. Chapter 8 and verse 31 of John, Jesus says to the Jews that had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and the truth you will know, and the truth will set you free. He asked them to test themselves, to examine themselves, or as Paul might say at the time of communion, examine yourself and to see if indeed you are in the faith. Right here in this setting in John chapter 15, just a few chapters before, 
Judas was sent away. And from what they knew and experienced, Jesus was, a Judas, should I say, was in Jesus. Yet Satan entered him in chapter 13, and Jesus sent him away and said, do what you're going to do quickly. The Apostle John would explain this phenomena. We would call this the apostate Christian, those who claim to be in Christ and yet reject him. He would say in his epistle, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because what? They were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued, but they went out that, they might, that it might become plain that they were not of us. There are two types of branches that are, quote-unquote, in him, those who profess Christ and those who actually possess Christ. Those who honor Christ with their lips, but their heart is far from him, and those who truly profess Jesus Christ is Lord. Not those who say, Lord, Lord, but he never knows them. Matthew chapter 13, I invite you to turn. Here is a parable of, we call it the parable of the weeds of the field, Matthew chapter 13. And here's Jesus's, I really think in, in a great way, a parallel to this. He illustrates <clears throat> this truth by the parable of the weeds of the field. And talking about the kingdom of, of heaven in verse 24, he says, There's a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Maybe that's how I got all those weeds in my garden. Anyway, so verse 26, So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds also appeared, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, do you, do you not, um, uh, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers to gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What is Jesus meaning by this? Well, he explains it to them, which is helpful, in verse 36. They ask him, what does this mean? Explain this. In verse 37, he answers, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun, and the kingdom of their father, in the kingdom of the father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
In this context, we are back in John 15. This is very much parallel in the idea of the Father taking them away. They're taking them away in judgment because they professed to be in Christ, but they were really weeds, not wheat in that parable. In here, it's a dead branch, not a live branch that is not alive in Christ. Parallel to that, if you're back in John chapter 15, look down to verse 6. The same imagery is expanded. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Judgment. Jesus has already taught that. This is the same imagery in Ezekiel chapter 15 in which a fruitless vine is not worthy of anything. You don't make tables and chairs and furniture out of it. You just burn it. And it'll be destroyed. And so the Father purges then this vineyard. The second thing the Father does is prune. Verse 2 of chapter 15, if you're there, he takes away and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more. This pruning is not infusing righteousness to the branch, but it is improving it through discipline that it might bear fruit and might bear fruit in abundance. He makes this clear in verse 3, if you note here, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Okay, So this is not salvific in that sense. This is sanctifying. This is conforming them more like Christ. The words of Christ then have a sanctifying effect. The disciples who were genuinely then in Christ, this is the contrast, those that are being pruned, they will undergo pruning in this metaphor. It's to make it more productive and hence demonstrates God's purposes in allowing pain in the life of the believer. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and we'll finish with this. When I was a kid growing up we had two apple trees in my yard. A red delicious and a golden delicious. That's what they said they were but they weren't all that delicious. (laughs) They were like little crab apples. These trees have been there forever, I guess. And one day my dad got the bright idea that we would just lop off almost all the branches. And so we did it. And you know, the next year, we got some pretty good apples. In agriculture, pruning improves the fruit. And likewise, Hardship in the life of the believer is under the divine care of the vine dresser 
who has a purpose in doing it. And that's what this preacher in Hebrews chapter 12 is addressing. He's saying, My son, verse 5, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Read pruning there. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Every son. For it is for discipline that you, you endure, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which you have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it is seen best to them. But he, speaking of God, he always disciplines for our, note this, good, verse 10, that we may share in his holiness. That is, it has a sanctifying work. It is always good. I discipline my kids because I love them. But I'm not always perfect in my discipline. I want to be, but I admit I'm not. I don't do it perfectly. But God does. The imagery of a vine dresser here as the father who would discipline his children. But for the moment, all discipline seems painful. Or in the analogy of the vine, all pruning seems painful rather than pleasant. You don't have to amen here. But we know that. But later it yields, notice this, Similar imagery, it yields the peaceful, the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those that have been trained by it. God has a purpose in that. He is the vine dresser. And so the call then to the church is simply this, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. And Christ says, I will abide in you. Why would you abide in Christ that indeed you would bear fruitful, peaceful fruit of righteousness as it's described here in our text in Hebrews? The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in Christ. Jesus Christ is the true vine. And the Father is the vine dresser. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would grant us a hearing of your word, that we might desire to continually abide in Christ and by doing so bear fruit to your name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think on these things. Respond directly to God in the way he may have spoken to you today. If you're outside of Christ, if you just say that you're in but you're really not, you're subject to great judgment and purging. So it's a call to repent and believe. And if you're in Christ and going through great pruning time, Note 
that it is for your good and his glory. In either case, it's a reminder to abide in him. Take a moment privately where you're at. great fruitfulness for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.